Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast that keeps you aware of feminist news and culture the easy way. So, Madhvi, what are we talking about today? So today, since it's the first episode of this year, and we have a snazzy new theme song made by the amazing Alejandro Mosso, who's a Berlin-based artist, we'll link to him on our SoundCloud. We were also thinking, as many people do at this time of year, what are we going to do next year? How can we make more of an impact? What are we interested in and passionate about? And so... We had this brilliant idea of watching Malala's masterclass. Malala, who has the Malala Fund and is the Nobel Prize winner for peace. And her aim is to invest in girls' education um, and help all girls basically go to school because many girls do not go to school throughout the world. And she's an activist. She's really good at it. So she's got this masterclass on creating change. So we were like, Yes, let's do that. We want to create change. A lot of change is needed in the world right now. So we watched this. I think she's great. She has a great mission. She has a great organization. She is creating change. But we were both watching this. And since we both kind of work in communications and like, you know, brand and all that, we were like, we know all of this. It's marketing. Yeah, I think with this masterclass, I felt kind of similar to the last few ones that I had watched, with the exception of Tan Francis one, because he is perfect and can do no wrong. But I did the Natalie Portman one. And again, as someone who has two theater degrees, I was watching this being like, yeah, this is pretty standard knowledge. So I feel like maybe this specifically Malala's, also Natalie Portman's, maybe they're aimed at people who aren't necessarily already, you know, enveloped in the field. So the thing that was actually good is I find her really encouraging. She does have this thing where she's just like, you know, every action you take and everything you do matters. So that was good. She is encouraging in, you know, you to like figure out what you're passionate about and then just go for it and be really dedicated to it. And she has that same sort of attitude and she's really good at like platforming other people and stuff. So that's really useful. But just to go back to like some of the things that were super sort of for us, I guess, basic where, you know, like figuring out what your values is, what your mission is, saying it in one line, setting SMART goals. And for anyone who doesn't know what SMART goal is, um, it's an acronym. It means goals that are specific, measurable, achievable, achievable and aspirational at the same time. So like, you know, the right level of goal. Relevant, you know, is it relevant to your cause and time bound so you know you're going to achieve this within a year or whatever i should add i did not know what smart goals were so at least you know i did learn something yeah so like it's like you know setting targets and then speaking to different people in different ways to get them on board so for example if you speak to a politician maybe tell them why this could be good for the economy for example women in education just means that you know you've got more women in the workforce and it's better for the economy for social changes yeah, her selling point according to which audience she's talking to, which is basically marketing. Marketing is important because of the structure of the world we live in and everything has just become marketing. And it got me thinking about how even this kind of thing, like girls' education, for example, it's not just like, just give them education because they're human beings. It's give them education because 
this is the the cost effective sort of benefit for the economies all framed within a capitalistic way mm. and that's actually not Malala's fault right because she's working within the world she's working with the UN she's working with governments she's going on news shows she has to speak in a language in order to get what she wants she has to play the game which is clear and she does it really well and that's really great but it just got me thinking about you know the state of mm. philanthropy charities and activism it really reminds me of we watched this noam chomsky talk back when we did our episode on anarchy where he talks about how there are some problems in the world some issues in the world that you can't wait for them to be fixed in order to take down oppressive hierarchies specifically here he was talking about climate change he was saying about like you know what climate change and climate catastrophes are such a pressing issue that we have to work within the existing frameworks to try to solve the problem because if we try to dismantle a system that doesn't recognize climate change first it'll be too late we'll be ruined so i feel like malala's doing something similar right where like in order to move towards a more equal future we have to sort of reform the structures and work within the structures we have nowadays to get to that point but it's interesting right because this is like the problem we keep on coming up against which is like okay but if you're working within the system you're still kind of supporting it yeah and you're complicit within it because just by getting girls into education and then the workforce and then you're still perpetuating a system that is kind of not really you know, feminist, which is destructive, you know, to the climate and all this, you know, expansionary economy and all that. You're solving the problems of individual lives. And of course, you know, women are getting power. And I mean, it's not necessarily either or, but then maybe through this action, you're also deterring revolutionary action, you mm -hmm. know, all the women who are out of education, but then they, maybe they would taken a more extreme action if it wasn't for the charity or maybe they just wouldn't because they just have absolutely no power and you have to get them first to this first step of education and then they might be able to take power i mean who knows but the language of charities is fascinating and at the moment you know we're seeing a lot of this first of all because christmas just occurred and this idea of giving and charity and all of that is very much based in christian notions of charity and charity and giving and philanthropy actually go across all cultures so it's like really universal but especially now the language around it is very capitalistic mm. And I recently read an interview with Amy Schiller. She just wrote a book called The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It. She sort of looked at the modern idea of philanthropy. And like I said, a lot of what we're dealing with is, you know, charities writing to you or putting adverts and asking you for money. And she said there's three main tropes that she can identify one is objectification the other one is cost effectiveness and the other one is self-interest for the donor so objectification covers the reduction of people to their suffering their desperation for the most basic items necessary to survive so it's kind of like a sensationalism a melodrama a fetishization like drawing people's emotions pleading eyes and like children dying children things like that the images you know it's a objectification of you know poor people and then the cost effectiveness which you could see in the malala advice is that you know for just one dollar a day you can save a child's life or whatever and she calls this the exchange rate for generosity 
And then self-interest, which I think is the most interesting one for the donor. First of all, it's the cost effectiveness, of course. So they, they feel really heroic and like they're making a difference and virtuous and stuff like this. And the other one is that you feel like you've made an effect and also like you're buying an emotion mm. or a moral superiority or something, or you're buying, you know, you're alleviating guilt or you're feeling good about yourself or things like this. I'm not saying that people should not give money. People should give money to charities. We should redistribute wealth and stuff. That's all cool. But it's just interesting that she's just looked at it culturally to say, well, all of these tropes provoke some questions, like what are the power dynamics? What are the assumptions about the people who need help that are going on? What are the promises of efficacy and superiority, the donor's superior virtue? All of this, you know, like what is suggested by our modern language of philanthropy. And the other thing that's really interesting is it's always seen like as a redistribution of wealth between classes. So like richer people, for example, in the West give to countries where, you know, people are poorer or whatever, stuff like that, or even in between in the same countries, you know, it's like the upper classes or the billionaires are, you know, like Bill Gates is, you know, doing philanthropic acts for everyone else. So it's like seen as the domain of the privileged and super rich. And the other thing that she talks about is effective altruism, mm. which is the evaluation of charities in really utilitarian metrics. And one of these metrics is QualiQ. A-L-Y, another acronym, which is Quality Adjusted Life Years. Again, it's like, it's not just treating humans as humans. Like, you should just be able to enjoy education and learn and expand your mind because that's just what childhood should be, right? It's, you are generating a workforce for the capitalistic, you know. This is kind of what Tamana was saying in our interview where she was talking about being a refugee, where she's saying, like, the argument always for investing in refugees is that they'll be able to contribute to the German economy, you know? And it's like, so we want, you know, the argument is we should help them to make money down the line, not because, you know, they're people and we should help them. Yeah, we've come to a point basically where every single, all of our language is being kind of colonized by this language of capitalism about, mm -hmm. like, cost-effectiveness productivity, cost-benefit analysis, things like yeah. this. And that's how like a lot of charities are also operating or have to operate in order to speak the language. But then that, at the same time, language, you know, matters mm -hmm. and it reduces people's humanity, which is really interesting when it comes to the word philanthropy. Yes. So mm -hmm. philanthropy is a Greek word. It has its roots in two words. One, philos, meaning love, and anthropolos, meaning humans. So philanthropy essentially means the love of humanity. Isn't that, I mean, I was going to say, isn't that cool? But then I realized that like the majority of our words are Greek. So the <laughs> etymology of the word philanthropy is neither unusual nor surprising, but... Yes, it's Greek. <laughs> it's also really interesting that she discusses in her book different donors, um, like Mackenzie Scott, who is the ex-wife of Bezos, uh, who's given away vast sums of her money. <laughs> and given away Bezos. <laughs> yes, win-win. <laughs> uh, or Andrew Carnegie or LeBron James. And she really likes LeBron James's approach hmm. because he's got the I promise schools and it's strongly rooted in his community because he grew up in Akron, Ohio 
And I've watched a speech that he gave at the I Promise uh, school. First of all, he's like, I normally don't even plan these. And he's just talking about how he he understands the things that are important to children because he lived there mm. and what's important, you know, living in a socially deprived setting. So he's talking like from his own experience, he's talking to his community, from his local community. He's not trying to do really mm. crazy stuff like go to Ethiopia and, you know, that he has no connection with. He's, he's just like, this is where I come from and this is where he needs help. But one beautiful thing that he does is he gives every single child in the school a bike because he says with the bike you get the sense of freedom it's got no cost you know benefit analysis to that it's yeah. the sense kids love that feeling of freedom and it just gives them this sense mm. and it's not to do with the really the education and structure and getting them to achieve high degrees and go into policy and make the world a better place it's just got to do with their kids they're gonna all love being on their bikes it's so nice it's kind of interesting because specifically the conversation around philanthropy, Bill Gates, for example, he's always applauded for all his philanthropy. You know, he does all this work with malaria. He's helped eradicate malaria or whatever, whatever Bill Gates has done. The reason why I'm so dismissive about it is I'm like, I'm sure that the work that he's doing with malaria is important. Sure, fine. But the real question is, the man is worth billions. If he was really interested in helping make the world a better place, he could give away his fortune and, like, solve all the world's problems. But of course he's not going to do that, because to a man like Bill Gates, just making a lot of assumptions about him here, but it's pretty valid, to rich billionaires who engage in philanthropy on, like, this level, not LeBron James' level, it's not actually about making the world a better place. It's like you mentioned before, it's about stroking their own ego about making himself feel like he's doing something better for the world. I'm helping. There was another really recent article about exactly Bill Gates in The Nation recently, and it argued that it's self-serving, his philanthropy, and yes. designed to make him richer and scrub his image as a billionaire. Yes, it's such a brilliant PR move because now when you think Bill Gates, you think of his foundation. You think of his work with malaria. I've never actually Googled this and I know he works with malaria because it's just in the cultural membrane. And so it's such a great PR move. Um, I follow this really great Substack newsletter by a writer called Liz and she does this dingus of the week thing. <laughs> well, her, her dingus of the week during Christmas was the most terrible Christmas song ever, which is Do They Know It's Christmas? Oh my god, yes. L oh my god, everything that, what's his name, Bob Geldof has ever done. This is Bob Geldof, right? This is Live Aid, this is the There won't be snow in Africa yes, this Christmas. Which is a lie, there will be snow in Africa, because Africa is a continent, not a country, you idiot. She says, if you can believe it, the song, which is a top contender for the worst song of all time, was written and performed and gotten into stores so quickly, no one had time to question his existence. <laughs> the song was written by Bob Geldof, who saw a BBC report on a famine in Ethiopia. He wrote the song, roped in his famous friends, recorded it in one yowling, obnoxious day, then boom, the song was released. The birth of Do They Know It's Christmas was a real moment when the scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they never stopped to think of if they should. In a real Dr. Frankenstein moment, even Bob Geldof, the creator, said the song was one of the worst songs of all time. <laughs> sure, you can argue that the song was meant well. These celebrities just wanted to 
in their words, feed the world. Okay. <laughs> but we have to stop giving celebrities and rich people a pass for doing narcissistic PR things on the backs of people with actual needs. If you wanted to feed the world so badly, you could just donate some money and shut up. But no. No, you gotta yodel some self-serving lyrics into a mic and make everyone think how nice you are before you scamper back to your mansion. <laughs> She's really funny. So she does this dingus, dingus of the week thing. I would recommend you follow. It's lyz.substack.com. But anyway, she said it reminds her of a moment where she went to a talk where the founder of North Face talked about all he's been working on to save the planet. And... The good woman raised her hand and asked, if you want to save the planet, why don't you just shut down your entire company? No one needs it. And then everyone in the room got uncomfortable and the guy looked at me for a long time and then just changed the subject. <laughs> I love the fact that she did that. Top. That's amazing. <laughs> Rich people really see problems in the world and think, how can I make this about me? That's basically it. But one of the things that I did really want to talk about, so we just watched a lecture from a professor at Oxford University, Dr. Frank Prochaska, who's a historian. First of all, he was incredibly shady and loved that. Like he kept throwing shade. Amazing. But one of the things was that he kept using the terms philanthropy and charity, and volunteering, and throwing them all into one pot. Or at least, within this lecture, all of the words seem to be used more or less interchangeably. So, my understanding, or like for me, philanthropy and charity are not necessarily the same thing. I think of philanthropy as someone like Bill Gates, who has too much money, making it his career to, like, give other people money. Charity, to me, is an organization... It can be done by people who don't have a lot of money. It can be done by people who have a lot of money. Charity to me is just the act of helping other people. This is just the way I interpret things. But I think one is an organization and one is kind of like an act is a verb, right? Yeah. So like, so a charity is philanthropic. Well, like, I guess it depends on like what the charity is, right? So like I was in, in preparation for this. I re-listened to the maintenance phase episode on RFK Jr., and he has set up a charity to help or a foundation to, well, he's not really helping anyone. He's just making everything worse. But he's a crazy anti-vax guy. But he thinks he's helping and he's set up this charity to promote this. He is a philanthropist and that is the charity. But, for example, if I donate now to the German Red Cross, that's an act of charity. You know, like, I feel like there's... It's an act of philanthropy. But... See, that that's the interesting, because I think of philanthropy, and this is just purely a like personal definition. For me, philanthropy, I interpret it as someone with a lot of money donating. And God knows I do not have a lot of money. Traditionally, actually, both those words are related, and they both can mean in the broader sense, you know, a love of humanity or expression of kindness towards humanity. So they're both like really, really related. And I think you're right that like now we think of philanthropy as exactly what you're saying. But traditionally, it was not so. And in his lecture, he was saying in the 19th century or in the Victorian times, there was so, 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 so many charities in 
Britain. And it was not actually between the rich and the poor. A lot of the hospitals in the north, for example, were run by working class or working workhouses were run, you know, all of those uh, food things, everything was charity and philanthropy and volunteering, all of those things by the working class for the working class. Also, he does make that same argument of maybe the charities fill the gap and therefore thwarted revolution. And also like now you see that with like GoFundMe and stuff, like I need to have an operation for my cancer. And everyone's like, ah, oh, good. You feel good. You've given some money. The problem's been solved. But actually, shouldn't we be looking at the systematic thing that is like, hey, if somebody has cancer, maybe we should have a system that pays for mm. the treatment. But at the same time, he also says then what happens, because he goes to a whole history of, you know, these organizations. One of the super interesting things when it comes to feminism is a lot of these associations, they were also called associations and societies, all of that kind of stuff, all falls under charities. A lot of these charities, you had to vote for leaders, you had to do assemblies and things. And a lot of women were mm. involved in this. So they were able to vote in these associations before they were able to vote in government. And they learned a lot about legalities and frameworks and structures and voting and organization through these organizations. And it helped women's emancipation. Yeah, it gave them a lot of autonomy and power in situations where they didn't have power, right? Because they could directly yeah. contribute, like, where does this money going? Who is leading this? And so Exactly, on. they could decide what causes they were interested in and participate in democracy before democracy allowed them to, the official democracy allowed them to participate. And what's interesting about his point of view is actually that now charities in the modern world also, he's got the figures, for example, in the 1970s, like 10% of revenue that went to charities came from government. And now he says it's hard to tell because charities aren't obliged to give you where the revenue comes from. But he says about roughly 45% come from like state sources. This is in the UK. So from the taxpayer. And some charities or societies get even like 75% of their entire funding from governments. And a lot of government contracts are fulfilled by charities. Mm. And so the stuff that used to be charity domain or association domain, like even hospitals, for example, after the World War, we got the NHS and the National Health Service and all of that. And all of those hospitals, which were charity volunteering based or funded by, you know, working class, they all got taken over by the government, which in a way is a natural progression of things like that's what happens. You could even see it with when there was the Ukraine war just started in Berlin First of all, it was all people organizing how those people at the station at Hauptbahnhof were coming in and it was all self-organized, like pure grassroots. And then the government came and took it over and made it everything official and blah, blah, blah. And this generally happens. But he says that actually before, when those associations were fully independent of government funding, they were more sort of democratic because they could set their own agendas a lot more. Mm. And I mean, he said it so nicely is um, one nurse told him that no one is rude to his rich uncle. So the government is setting an agenda and then funding charities to like sort mm. of sort that stuff out. It's no longer so much of a grassroots thing mm. as a counterbalance to government mm. agendas and interests and not so much localized either. The local bits are missing. A lot of people assume that, you know, a lot of things should be managed by the government anyway. But there is an argument to say that actually the government took over the NHS and then it 
dehumanize the whole thing because it becomes a system you know an institution a massive centralized system yeah and then because of capitalism the way things are working with the nhs specifically it becomes this cost effective based on things like metrics measurables their reporting all of this because that's how big institutions work and so it does actually dehumanize people even though it's a great thing that nhs like we need a national health system otherwise we get a gofundme situation also which is also not good but at the same time it does take the power away from the people like organization Mm. between the working class and the communication and the sense of solidarity it takes that away really brings me to something I've been thinking about really recently because I've been reading Susan Sontag's On Women, which is a collection of essays. And she says this great thing. I'm going to quote her. She says, Women have to learn, first of all, how to talk to one another. Like blacks and other colonized peoples, women have trouble organizing, are not easily disposed to respect one another and to take one another seriously. They are used to leadership, support, and approval by men. It is therefore all the more important that they do learn to organise politically by themselves and try to reach other women. Their mistakes are at least their mistakes. And then she suggests a bunch of activities that only all women's groups can or want to perform, and it's a brilliant list. Women should lobby, demonstrate, march. They should take karate lessons. They should whistle at men in the streets, raid (laughs) beauty parlors, picket toy manufacturers who produce sexist toys, convert in sizable numbers to militant lesbianism, operate their own free psychiatric and abortion clinics, provide feminist divorce counseling, establish makeup withdrawal centers. I want to do that. Adopt their mother's family's names as their last names, Deface billboard advertising that insults women, disrupt public events by singing in honour of the docile wives of male celebrities and politicians, collect pledges to renounce alimony and giggling. And giggling? Yeah. Okay. They shouldn't giggle. All right. She's against it. Bring lawsuits for defamation against mass circulation women's magazines conduct telephone harassment campaigns against male psychiatrists who have sexual relations with their women patients organize beauty contests for men put up feminist candidates for all public offices Um, so yeah and then that got me thinking wait like where is the feminist movement today like where are the women's groups where are we organizing where are we meeting not necessarily just i mean she thinks just women and i think there's a really great argument for just women meeting like she doesn't make a very good argument but you know feminists i would just broaden it a bit feminists who really want change like where are our meetings in our daily lives and it's the same with like the nhs and the working class i think you know we've got a women's minister and we just assume everyone else is doing it which is why when we were discussing this, like what direction are we going to take the podcast in the next year and stuff, we've decided to start a feminist book club with the first book being Susan Sontag's On Women, of course. And our first meeting will be on January the 24th. You can email us misinformed.podcast at gmail.com if you want to join you all you have to do is read the book or read some of the essays in the book and come along and we'll send you the address and then we're going to meet and do feminist things and we're reading one book a month you can find the details we can email them to you or you can find the details on our instagram or on our facebook or in this week's newsletter so we only send two out a month you can subscribe by going to misinformed.substack.com 
And we would love to see you and create change in our daily lives and discuss how this would happen from a community, super local, Berlin-based group. Yes. And on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Number one, you should come to our book club. It's going to be great, but there's no pressure. You can come hang out. You can come discuss. It's going to be fun. It's going to be revolutionary. <laughs> it's going to be fun revolutionary. Number two, I would donate to the Malala Fund. She does a great thing. And yes, you know, activism isn't just about giving money, but money is really important to all these charities and all these people doing a lot of hard work. So please, people, give money to charities. Thing number three, I think New Year's resolutions are always very complicated and hard because we often set unrealistic expectations and set ourselves up for failure, make ourselves feel bad down the line. So I would say... Maybe set up some realistic resolutions if you really must partake in them. My best friend and I always set one once a year. Sometimes our resolutions are be kinder to ourselves, be kinder to others. So maybe do something along those lines instead of saying, I'm going to lose weight or go to the gym or whatever the standard ones are. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. For all links to sources and further reading for this week's episode, subscribe to our newsletter, misinformed.substack.com. Email us if you'd like to come on the show or join our book club, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. And support the show via Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash misinformed.